Hey, do you like movies? You do? Then I bet you're already very familiar with our friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. The company was started by cinephiles Joe Rubin and Ryan Emerson and was said to be, quote, perhaps the most important home video label in the world of genre film by the Alamo Draft House. Holy shit, that is one hell of an endorsement. A big part of that is because of a three-step process I lovingly refer to as the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an expansive film archive of over 500 feature films, and they also work closely with archival institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, the Academy, yeah, MoMA, the Academy Film Archive, the Library of Congress, UCLA, and the Walker Center. I can't even count how many of their releases have either never gotten a physical release or haven't been seen since the days of VHS. Many of these films look better than they have any right to look. My favorite thing about Vinegar Syndrome is that they have their own in-house lab, which they use to restore these films to all of their glory. I can honestly say that I have never seen any grain reduction or digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome was one of our first sponsors, and I'm overjoyed to say that they've stuck with us for five years. I'm still surprised we stuck around for five years, to be completely honest with you. uh, That we've stuck with each other. Yeah, I know. I really thought we'd be done after the first couple months in the first season. We're still keeping, baby! Yeah, we are. So check out their website today to pick up your copies of the Forgotten Jolly Collections 1, 2, and 3. Though one might be out of print, so if you see it, make sure you grab it. Satan's Blood, Fade to Black, a VHS favorite amongst a lot of cinephiles that was uh, unable to be released for a very long time. Taxi Girls, Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster, an HBO late night favorite. The 3D film Silent Madness, and the weirdo French Christmas horror film Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Deadly Game, and many, many more. Visit them today at VinegarSyndrome.com and let them know that the Shameless Picture Show sent you. That's right, VinegarSyndrome.com for all the cult, horror, exploitation, and vintage porn you could ever want. However much that may be. Yeah, exactly. When did, why did it just become red? Right? <laughs> so yeah, that's fun. I think when I opened Zoom, it... Threw my camera shit way off. Hold on. Whoa. Just became a Nick Laffin movie over this shit. Lay down uh, some synth. I thought like I thought I had like a stroke because I blinked and then I, you were red. <laughs> you did. So I Sorry. didn't see the the transition. That's how like all like photo and film filters should be labeled is like by director color palettes. This is weird. What are you running into now? So this is another reason why we do a preamble. Just to give us time to, like, fuck up. Because there's always some audio technical bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this is, I'm sure, super fun for everyone. kind of faded back in. (laughs) Yeah, that was cool. Interesting. (laughs) All right. All right. Now I'm Nick, you ready like, to get into the movie? checking my garage band every 30 seconds. Yes, I'm still recording. Let's talk about a movie. Right. Yeah, let's talk let's about a movie. That. All right. Well, Hell of a movie. I will I will read my intro well, I'll read the half of the introduction that <laughs> that, remains. that saved and uh, we will we'll go into it. So Warning. 
This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and with me, as always, is... I had a whole thing written and I got nothing. Um, and I'm trying to remember that line about the dude who uh, who uh, likes putting hot butter up his ass or whatever. Uh, whatever. No, Something to do with a big dick. That was just what I, I told you that in confidence. And I'd appreciate you not say it in public. But it is me. I like butter in my ass and lollipops in my mouth. Nick Richards. <laughs> yes. That's just something I like. Maybe I'm a perv. I don't know. But that's just something I like. Personally, I like it the other way around. <laughs> Each around. So today, me and Nick have a special guest on hand with us. We have, let's see if I can remember all your laurels. You are a filmmaker. You are a podcaster. You are a screenwriter. You have worked for, you have sold scripts to places such as the Weinstein Company. You have worked for Zach Efron's company, Ninja Running. And you, have, you and your brother Chris have written a bunch of stuff together. Graduates of UWM Film. And on top of that, your, your, new, your new feature-length independent film has created quite a splash. Cactus Jack, not named after Mick Foley. No. We've got Jason Thornton. Did I miss anything? I would like to clear one thing up. I'm a UWM dropout. Thank you very much. <laughs> I went off your LinkedIn. Fuck off. <laughs> it's a, it was on your LinkedIn. It's one of the many reasons I'm broke. That and being a professional screenwriter is another reason I'm broke. Um, not a living for the faint of heart. <laughs> but yeah, we've had some pretty good success, man. Options. Some shit, sold some shit, got hired to write some things, flew to Rome to break a story with these directors who hired us once. That was cool. Spent like two weeks in Rome, this little apartment writing. So we've had some successes, but eventually we're just like, we got to make something low down and dirty. So we made this film Cactus Jack with our Michael Gall in the lead. And it's pretty much a one man show. It's him and Sam Cosey. Uh, essentially through the whole thing. A few other players who did well. John Adler, you know, from Milwaukee Radio. Fame, he's in there um, just as a voice, though. Those are the only two actors we see. Or Michael Gaw and Sam Cosé. But basically it's about this documentarian, this amateur documentarian who finds out this dude who's the son of a friend of his mom's at church. She has this son, middle-aged, who hasn't left the house or the basement in like six months. So... The guy's like, this sounds like an interesting documentary subject. I'll go down and see what's up with this recluse who doesn't even go outside to piss or take out the garbage or anything. So he finds out the guy is this crazy, monstrous, neo-Nazi, doomsday prepper creep who's calling into radio stations and just spreading this hate and venom until he gets screened out of all of them. And now he's just like this bottled, you know, Molotov cocktail <laughs> waiting to be lit, essentially. And throughout the movie, I mean, the guy thinks it's still a fascinating subject. So he plays with fire. Eventually he gets burned and the tables get turned and the maniac gets a hold of the cameras and imprisons the documentarian and turns the tables on him and starts this podcast that spreads hate and goes viral to the point where anonymous doxes him. So then he turns his basement into like a machine gun nest, just waiting for somebody to come get him because he's made enemies of pretty much every ideological faction out there, you know? 
You're alone, right? Yeah, yeah. Is it cool if I start filming now? No, when we get inside. Why are you here? I just thought it was really interesting, you know, that someone hasn't left their basement in six months, not even to use the bathroom. Is that true? Why would I want to go out there? I got everything I need right here. That's what's wrong with most people. They're weak-willed pussies and parasites. You buy into that whole, it takes a village bullshit. You know how many aliases I've used calling into radio shows? I've had it up to my goddamn gills with the systematic feminization of this country. Aren't we importantly on that? Get your own damn show if you think you got that much to say. Yeah, you live in your mom's basement. Get down! Fuck you! What's so special about my loser son? You really do hate your own mother. She's a woman. Why wouldn't I? You know, there's some disconnect there, and, and if I could find it, what is hate? Where does it come from? Where does it go? You want to know what gender you are? Reach down the front of your fucking pants and shoot fucking kite. Black lives matter. Do you call horses slaves? Liberal fucktard. Enough with the parades and the rainbow flags. Dude, this guy's it's like pure hate, man. I want to see something really fucking cool. This guy is a fucking animal. He's got himself on a leash. He's itching to get off that fucking leash. And he's gonna fucking kill some people. What a fucking show. himself Cactus Jack. We have watched as you have rocketed to infamy. And you wonder why these cornered animals lash out. Get the fucking side. And now, we have watched as you have called for literal blood. I know you're out there listening. It's buzzing in your ears, burrowing into your brain. Do it. Jack, you're gonna love this. I pulled that trigger on that motherfucker's head. Your VPN will not shield you. The dark net will not hide you. You and your kind are finished. You think I'm scared of you? Come and fucking get me! Might I be your neighbor? Neighbor? It's crazy. It's the most. I saw that episode you guys did of the. I think each of you picked five movies that you. Oh yeah. Yes. Respected and were glad you were watched, but would never watch again. <laughs> and I cherish most of those movies you guys listed. And this is way worse than any of them. It's <laughs> the most offensive shit of all time, without a doubt. Because we figured, after years of development hell and executives not even letting us write bad guys, you, know, you can't even write a bad guy that bad anymore. A bad guy can't do something that triggers people. You know what I mean? So, I just wish that based on, you know, I obviously haven't seen Tactus Jack yet, but based I on... I sent him the trailer, though. Yeah, I did <laughs> see the trailer. So I have a sense of it. I just wish that it had some, like, applicable sense to our modern political climate. I know. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like some relic from the past, right? I think I described the movie. I described the... I described the movie one, uh, one time to someone as being like, they're like, well, what's it like? And I was like, well, 
from the little bit I've seen of it, I would describe it as American History X meets Pump Up the Volume, but worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we describe it as Taxi Driver meets Talk Radio. Nice. <laughs> okay, I can see that. Um, with, you know, American History, by way of American History X or something, but... uh. Now, you can't have a character like Cactus Jack without that movie being on the, you know, the tips of your tongue. Yeah, and the big thing for us, though, I love Pump Up the Volume, by the way. But uh, I do, too. I think it's a classic. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the reason I do I this. I can't wait to show it to my kid when he's like 13 and have him rebel against me and shit. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> he'll be so proud. He's like, yeah, exactly. rebel. Exactly. Uh, he'll probably end up being Alex P. Keaton or some shit if he rebels <laughs> against me. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, again, though, we were writing villains and stuff. Like, the Zac Efron thing we wrote for him was a serial killer movie where Zac Efron's supposed to play a serial killer. And, man, that's a whole story to that shit, too. <laughs> this was years ago, and they're like, I mean, we went through so many iterations and just the story's not even what we first pitched him now. What are we doing, et cetera? And then we went to them, and we're like, why don't we do a Ted Bundy movie? Why don't we just do a Ted <laughs> Bundy movie where he's marauding around the country? And they're like, that's a fucking awesome idea. Let me take it back to Zach. Well, you'll hear from us. And like two weeks later, I read in the trade, Zach Efron to play Ted Bundy. And there was already some Ted Bundy script on the blacklist just sitting out there. So they're like, yeah, let's go do that. So our shit died. Oh, but, uh, damn. And that's how most Hollywood stories go. Yeah. But the point being that we were always writing gnarly shit anyway. So when it came time for us to make our own thing, we're like, kid gloves off. <laughs> yep. We got no governor on us. No. <laughs> Hollywood execs saying this is too far it's, and then we wanted to make a depiction of hate like we grew up loving those movies about hate just fascinated with the subject like we grew up in Oxen Hill we're like the only white kids in our neighborhood so we understood those dynamics right. we knew why they hated us or whatever so <laughs> when we got to, I guess I dealt with some bullying but I didn't even consider it bullying because it was a different it wasn't personal you know what I'm saying the shit that we dealt mm -hmm. with sure. was more systemic or whatever but a uh, reverse whatever people say that's not even a term which is true but anyway get sidetracked here <laughs> so we wanted to make something where it's truly the embodiment of hate that no movie has ever done faithfully really i mean you see shit in a time to kill or something that's bad a lot of times it's off camera or it's two seconds of it we're like no what if you're like trapped with this fucking dude in a basement for two hours or well, hour and 20 minutes. We like short movies. If it was two hours, it'd be unbearable. <laughs> it's already too long an hour and 20 minutes of this dude doing nothing but spewing hate and shit. But I don't know, man, we just felt, uh, almost a call to action to do some authentic shit. And every single thing he says in this movie, if you watch it, it is the most triggering offensive movie ever, but everything he says in there, though, I paraphrased it in dialogue is real shit that people said on the internet. Every point sure. he makes, I pull okay. from the internet. It's not like we made this shit up, you know? Right. It's, uh, and this is a guy who doesn't think anyone's looking, which speaks to the whole anonymity of the internet and 4chan and the dark web, et cetera. So there's a lot of thematic zeitgeisty shit going on in it. And uh, we like to think it's an elevated exploitation film because it does have that kind of shit going on. But uh, it's probably an exploitation film. <laughs> like, it'll probably end up on Troma now or something. <laughs> we got a ended up getting Blood Sweat Honey run in part by Jeff Dowd, you know, the original The Dude. Mm -hmm. um, he's a pretty successful, well known film sales agent. They saw the movie, dug it, and 
have been shopping it to distributors, but it's been tough, dude. I mean, it is again super offensive. It's a hard, know, it's a hard sell. And I was fully prepared. Like I'm with Werner Herzog that you know, while I would prefer people with the means pay for shit, piracy is the most effective distribution system in the world. <laughs> you know, so I'm like pirate the movie, whatever. I was prepared to put it up for free. I don't give a shit. I mean, we made it for eleven grand. We got a couple people who put money into it and would like a return on their investment for sure. But uh, that's the point of making something that small yeah. is you don't need much of a return on your investment before you just, like, put it out there, you know? So, I don't know. We'll nice. see what happens. we still got a couple distributors, hardcore, horror-type places that uh, the guys are talking to, and Troma loves it, but they're not exclusive. So, I'm not making an announcement that it's on Troma or anything, but I think we'll at least end up there, which you know how I feel about Lloyd. <laughs> I know you have a history with him, Michael, but I fucking <laughs> say what you want, whether you like that genre, think it's trash or not, just as far as free speech, anti-censorship in film, um, allowing people to have bad taste and still explore bad taste. Like, I think that's vital. No, I, I used to work for yeah, him. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you. I was an editor him. for yeah, I was an editor for him for five years, and me and my my buddy Greg, who who peers on. Who appears on our Rocky episode with Lloyd. uh, Lloyd's also on that episode? Uh, You know, we, you know, you know what UWM. I'll send that more to the people who might be watching this, regardless of what they think about that kind of shit. Yeah, (laughs) you know, there's going to UWM. You know, there's you can't go to film school without developing some sort of a pretentious taste. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's hard not to, especially because it's film school is when you start seeing weird shit. And the first time you start seeing like art house cinema, you start like like where has this been all my life? And you just naturally kind of start becoming pretentious. It's just whether or not you can admit it. Uh, <laughs> but me and me and my my buddy Greg, we were always like we, we were like talking about these crazy pretentious films, and then talking about like you know Citizen Toxie and shit. Yeah, so like exactly. like and that was always where my interest lied. Is like where can I find the artfulness in trash? Exactly. Like you can appreciate all these different forms. You know what I mean? It's a uh... As much as I love even the uber pretentious Paul Thomas Anderson films like uh, Phantom Thread and The Master or whatever, you know, I'll take the taint for fucking honor killing from Troma any day of the week. My brother and I did an episode because um, we would each throw a movie into these double feature episodes and he threw in Mank from Fincher. It was around the time it premiered on Netflix. And I threw in uh, Mercedes the Muse's honor killing, the Troma film. And both of us by a mile, preferred honor killing to Mank, you know. So Mank wasn't very good. Exactly. That's why. <laughs> exactly. You but, could uh, have I all think the ingredients us- and just, you know. Yeah. Well, I think you gave us a pretty good segue by mentioning, as you said, the the uber pretentious, well, some of his films, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. So we've asked you on here today to join us, Jason, to discuss Paul Thomas Anderson's I guess comedy drama about the porn industry, <laughs> Boogie Nights. That's how Siskel described it, a comic drama. And I'm like, Honestly, I think, I think it's with the drama best drama over comedy, but it is funny as hell. I mean, it's, I don't know. I feel like I would lead with comedy. But we, hard back and, it's, we, it's not both of them at the same time. It will have these like yes. 20 minute stretches where it's just a comedy and then 10 minutes where it's like Requiem for a Dream. And it, yeah, and it's a horror. Yeah. It's yeah. Almost genre yeah. jumps throughout. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> So let me, I'll read my intro. We'll watch the trailer. We can get back to is Sweet. it a comedy or is it a drama? <laughs> 
So the year is 1977. Eddie Adams is a high school dropout who lives with his meek father and abusive mother. Eddie works at a very popular nightclub in Reseda where he happily commutes to, hoping to make a better life for himself. This club is also a popular jaunt for famous pornographer Jack Horner and his merry group of friends who all work together in the industry. Jack Jack is immediately taken (laughs) aback by Eddie, who is a good-looking guy. Jack sees something in him, and once Jack sees his incredibly large penis, realizes this kid can be a star. Eddie then gets involved in the insane world of pornography, where everyone is performing, both on and off camera. No one is their true self, and this is made even more poignant when Eddie changes his name to Dirk Diggler. Eddie is gone, Dirk is forever. Can Dirk continue to be the bright-eyed, innocent kid he started out as, or will the money, the drugs, and all the women go to his head? The film is based on a mockumentary short film that director uh, Paul Thomas Anderson made back in 1988, while still in high school, called The Dirk Diggler Story, which is loosely based on the story of John Holmes. The film is also noteworthy for its drama with Burt Reynolds, who, as the story goes, fired his manager after seeing a rough cut of the film, and this movie also gave Mark Wahlberg his breakout role as Dirk Diggler. The film would go on to make $43 million at the box office somehow, uh, and it was only, it was made for only $15 million, and would gain praise from critics for its performances and its, as a matter of fact, way of portraying sex and sex workers. Rarely is the sex in Boogie Nights sexy. It's often made to look exactly what it is, a job. Anderson is also praised for his ability to take a topic as, de- as divisive as porn and add artfulness, humor, and humanity to its characters. Boogie Nights was written by Paul Thomas Anderson based on his own short film with music by Michael Penn and cinematography by Robert Ellswit. The film stars Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, Heather Graham, and Philip Seymour Hoffman as Scotty J. Directed by T- Paul Thomas Anderson from 1997, this is Boogie Nights. My name is Jack. Any Adams from Toys? Yep. Jack Warner, filmmaker. I make a adult films, exotic pictures. I want to be in business with you. Maybe made me think about your name. Something a little pizzazz. You know, I plan on being a star. A big bright shining star. This industry is going to be turned upside down soon enough. Why not be prepared? I am a star. I'm a star, a star, a star. I'm a big, bright, shining star. Cut! Wait, 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 wait. Love this part. I mean, God, what can you expect when you're on top, you know? It's like Napoleon, when he was the king... You know, people were just constantly trying to conquer him, you know, in the Roman Empire. So it's history repeating itself all over again. Hey, 
something to remember you about. If you look at the trailer, it's a comedy. But yeah, that's that that it 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 hints a little bit at the darkness that's to come. But that is a straight up comedy hints. trailer. But there's some yeah. shit in that movie people would not see coming from the trailer. Which <laughs> can I make an admission here and now? The only person I've told this to yeah. is my brother. The first time I saw this film, I was in the U.S. Air Force. I was stationed over New Hampshire, New Boston Air Station. Didn't see that coming. Satellite tracking. And I went with this other dude. I was probably 19 years old. I went with this other dude who was an airman and just super. He was like some rural townie type from Pennsylvania or some shit. And uh, we'd drink rolling rocks or whatever and (laughs) fucking just ride snowmobiles around the base and shit. It was totally just meathead shit. And he knew I loved movies. And I'd go see pretty much everything in the Monsterplex. But, uh. Any theater. We went and watched this shit, him, me and him one day, and fucking halfway through the movie, walked out. Oh, wow. Bailed on it. Because <laughs> he was the wrong dude to watch it with. I'm sure if I went sure. by myself, I wouldn't have, but I could just tell he was like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> I mean, he probably had a mom who went to church on Monday nights type shit. I don't know. But uh, his mom was Dirk Diddler's mom. A, and even I, it's a weird... I, like you said, you go to college and you get exposed to more fucked up movies or whatever. I grew up loving movies, but it was pretty much the mainstream shit you'd see at the theater. I didn't yeah. have any cinephiles in my family or anything, you know? So we discovered some of these things later. But, I mean, to me, I think this is a straight-up masterpiece. And I walked out halfway through it in the theater <laughs> the first time I saw it. So Well, it's it's funny like how you can you can feel when you're watching a movie of someone who's not vibing yeah. with it. And then it makes it hard to enjoy it. Oh yeah, so I get. I wasn't enjoying I myself that. for sure, but uh, but I think there was a part of me too who was just like, "What am I watching?" Because this is long and it's not plot driven at all. I mean, most of the shit we grew up on—it's a, it's a hangout movie, exactly. It's a hangout movie, but you know, at nineteen, I wasn't really that used to watching them. And again, just the whole military vibe, that dude, etc. It was. We bet. Honestly, the fir- the first time I saw this movie, it was it's it's one of those movies I wasn't expecting to like pull me in because like I. It came on late night on like HBO or some shit, and I was just looking to see some boobs, honestly. <laughs> and then you know, I was like, "Oh, this is a movie about porn." I just thought the movie was a porn, <laughs> like because like I think when I when I turned it on, it was like right in the middle of like Dirk's first scene mm-hmm. with Julianne Moore. But then like something happened. Like I, I saw Burt Reynolds. It's like, oh, this isn't porn. This is you know, this is a movie, and. You know, like, I turned it on originally just because, like, oh, I'm sure I can see some nudity. You know, you're a, a teenage kid just trying to see some boobs or right. whatever before the internet. And um, it movie ended up, like, pulling me in. I got really invested in this in this this world. In this, and I remember, like, later on down in the film when, like, uh, Dirk's on, you know, down and out. And he has that interaction with that dude in the truck. Yeah. And the guy's paying him to jack off. And then Dirk gets the shit beat out of him and gets robbed. And I'm like, I'm practically sitting there in tears. I'm like, what did he do? <laughs> and that's why I say this isn't a comedy. Like, yeah. life is funny. This movie is funny because life is funny. And funny, ironic it's, things happen in life. But it's It just didn't feel tragic. right just to, just to call it a drama. Because when I think of drama, I think of, like, 
Blue Valentine. I mean, people classify. I mean, anything. It's a, that's just something we do for right. our own yeah, benefit, yeah. you know. But uh, I mean, you could almost argue it's unclassifiable, and because of that, it's great. A hangout movie is one way to classify it, but I mean, it mm-hmm. really is the human experience in a nutshell. It's got everything in there. Everything <laughs> that you know vexes us from human ego run amok to compassion. I mean, look at the way. Take Joya Moore's character, for example, Amber Waves. Like, she can't take care of her own daughter. And it's, like, too much of a source of pain to try and mend that in her life. And being with her own true kid, it's just not compatible with her demons. Yet she finds this little family that she can nurture and be a mother to and everything, you know, by proxy. So, I mean, the final scene of the movie reveals what it really is. It's a movie about a family. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's just the most fucked up dysfunctional family of all time, <laughs> you know? And it's a found family movie. It's not a familial I, yeah. movie. Uh, I think the the way that it ended brought me a great deal of relief because I was anticipating this being a much darker film. I think one of the reasons why I didn't watch it sooner is I never heard it described as a comedy, and I was expecting that... Um, you were expecting it to be a bummer. I was, e- shit, yeah. I was expecting the end of the movie to come, right, like, after Dirt Diddler got the crap kicked out of him, and, like, that that 15-minute segment where, like, everybody hit rock bottom. Yeah. I thought that was going to be the ending. So then when it hit this moment of, like... I, I think it was actually pretty... Had a modern sensibility in who they made as villains in the end versus, you know, people at the end. I think the right people were villainized. The what, the general or the colonel. The colonel, or yeah, the, for sure. Um, the, the guy that robbed Alfred Molina, you know. Um, Todd Parker. To, uh, Todd to a certain extent, William H. Macy in those five minutes, at you know, that wrapped up his story. Oh, One of the most fuck. gangster... Gangster fucking tracking shots of all time. Yes. Holy it doesn't get talked about enough. Here's no. The that- like the opening tracking shot. The tracking shots you'll see in Casino and a lot of Scorsese stuff. A lot of it, Touch of Evil, it's world building. It's bringing us in. Even in this, it's that opening shot, and then it tracks all over to bring us into this world. Yeah. But this, this is one purely character-driven It forced shot. us to live with him yes. in that decision, both leading up to uh, him. Like this and party this around him while he's having spoiler the Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, both him shooting his wife and lover, but then it stayed with him until he came back to the party and shot himself. Like, you had to see him walking up to, like, making that decision, walking all the way out to the car to get the gun, walking all the way back in. And you know it's going to happen once he gets that done, so yeah, then the you as an audience member spread. are like, shit, this is going to happen, and they don't let you look away. William H. Macy... He's done so much great oh shit. His his like fifteen minutes in this movie is some of the best fucking yes. acting he's done. And that's not even including <clears throat> like the shit he's done on stage with Mad yeah. Matt, et cetera. No. You know, William H Macy's the fucking man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've never seen the show, so I'm shitting on it for no reason. I'm bummed out that he's gonna be he's always he's gonna be known as the shameless guy for <laughs> Yeah, my wife watched. I'm it sure. I'm sure. He, I'm sure he's great in that show, but yeah. like, fuck, he's Fargo, done a lot of dude? Stuff. Come on, yeah. Magnolia, so, Nick. Nick, this is your first time seeing this movie. Yep, we've I, I, I've you, you kind of buried the weed a little bit. I, I did. Tell enjoy me, it. tell me your thoughts. I so like I said, I was expecting it to be much darker. Um, 
upon finish, not even upon finishing yet, about halfway through, I was confident that I would have to reassess my top 20 films because this is somewhere in that. Fuck yeah. I did Fuck not yeah. realize how much I was going to love this dude. movie. It is so good. The, the acting. The casting. The, the, it, is, it has everyone in it. The the camera work and the, the first editing. first 15 minutes of this movie was just my wife film. being like, that guy, that guy, <laughs> that girl. Um, and, and I think the way that they handled sex and drugs was, again, uh, was ahead of its time in that the film did not really penalize anyone for sex or, or drug use. It, the, the penalties for the characters were all things outside of that pedophilia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all, all of these other darker, sicker things. And everybody else was just a family trying to make some money, having some fun, making some porn. And, like, what's wrong with that? They were, it was a bit chaotic at times. They all had their demons to work through. But, like we pointed out before, like, they were just a little happy family that they put together. Yeah. And to go even further thing. than that, though, Burt Reynolds' character, truly... Oh, he's so fucking good in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I know. It's so great. That it's ironic and it sucks that he didn't like the cut he saw yeah. this shit because it's like Paul Thomas Anderson gave him his last shot at a truly great performance. You know, that's really mm-hmm. it was it for him. But uh, And it was a great performance. But what I'm getting at is that character, Jack Horner, he is about art. He's about trying to inject, like you said earlier, Michael... Can I see the art in a trauma film? He's like, can I put some art into pornography? You know, well, Which, and, and there and was like, that I, movement in the seventies, the girl behind the green door, you know, yeah, there were art yeah. house porn flicks that would play in and the village. I was, shit, you know? I've, I've reviewed a handful yeah. of porn films on, on this show exactly. from that time period. And, you know, I, and anytime like I had to review one, I thought of that fucking scene of him talking about, you know, just like, you know, how do you keep them in the seat after? Yeah, they sit in their own fucking mess because <laughs> they can't yeah. leave. <laughs> the, this film is so many things, but I think what I land on at the end after it's all done playing and I sit with it a little bit is that it's a deal with the devil story. And it's singularly because of Burt Reynolds' character and his performance in that He is such a passionate artist. And then once the colonel goes down and he learns what the colonel did and that like, that's when he sells out. That's when he gives up the art because of his guilt of association with this terrible man. And it's just what he does for a living and the colonel's gone and that source of financing is gone yet. Who's there? The video guy, Philip Baker Hall, you know? Yeah. Where they're going to make cheap video. And that's one of the things the film is about, too, which I really want to dig into you guys, is film versus digital. Right, right. Because as filmmakers, you got your traditionalists, who would be a Paul Thomas Anderson, a Quentin Tarantino, Spielberg, even tradition, Spielberg said, (laughs) where they're enamored with film and the look of it and the physicality of it and everything. But I got to counter, if these two mediums arrived on earth at the same time no one would have ever fucked with film <laughs> everyone it, dw Griffith so prohibitive in so many digital ways. yeah like yep. this is democratizing <laughs> that you can and, take a phone yes. and shoot a movie on it 
Absolutely. Well, it's also interesting too because, granted, it was it was because of necessity. But like, I sent Nick before uh, earlier today. I I sent him uh, the Dirt Diggler story. I found it on YouTube, and Anderson shot that shit on like VHS. And you know, and it's like, but it's also like. And but also it's like he he built into the style of what he's going for because he was he was aping you know like because it was eighty eight mm-hmm. you know those those TV documentaries and stuff like that's what it was shot on like I have to, to imagine if 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 you know high school year high school Paul Thomas Anderson could have made the Dirk Diggler story exactly as it was and chose between film and video he would have chose video for that mm-hmm. because that's what he was going for and I I even like that in Boogie Nights or Boogie Nights he's he he's swapping out formats. He's using different formats for different things. You know, when they're doing the little Dirk Diggler documentary, which is in some ways kind of like a little Amazing. remake of his own short film. <laughs> um, you know, he's shooting on like sixteen millimeter and shit. Like, because one of the things that drives me nuts when I'm watching a movie is, you know, if something is supposed to be like, you know, shot on shittio, and they're just using like a red camera and just putting a bad Filters, filter over yeah. it, that bugs the shit out of me. It's like just go get a fucking VHS camera and shoot it. That way, I don't know. To a degree. But well, I mean, yeah. honestly, you're, at the end of the day, you're just trying to tell a story. I encourage people to go out and shoot super lo-fi, shitty, whatever on their phone and really just try and tell your story to the best of your ability without letting the hurdle of not having hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars right. be a hurdle. Like, just yeah. tell some. And that's what's so interesting. Todd Haynes, Karen Carpenter, superstar of the Karen Carpenter story. You ever see that shit? No. Dude. Yeah. Put that on your shameless. It's fucking yeah. genius. It's something you made in college. It's like a 40-minute movie, but it's like this little tragic horror movie of Karen Carpenter, the singer, you know, who died through anorexia. He yeah. filmed it all with Barbie dolls. And he's oh like, my God. she's getting anorexic, whittling the Barbie dolls down and shit. Like, it's genius, dude. Wow. And it's like, that shows shit. that you could take fucking Barbie dolls and yep. tell an amazing story. Like, you don't need a budget. You don't need 70-millimeter fucking film, whatever. No. Don't let money this obstacle you know oh and that that's what i liked so much about watching anderson's you know high school film the dirt diggler story is like you can see you know he he didn't have the means he didn't have a lot of stuff but you could see that like you could intention you you can see its intention you can see the filmmaker he eventually becomes right you know he's he's really um I mean, that he yeah. had intention. Like, that's really what makes a filmmaker yeah. is having intention behind every creative decision you make. Yeah. You know? yeah, you can see that, you know, while it's it's almost like an unshined diamond. Like, right. It's there. He just hasn't found it yet. Um, and that's what I like so much about seeing that. And it, it, it's inspiring. And it's also really funny to see that the, the actor who plays the colonel play Jack Horner. Ah, interesting. Because <laughs> in the short film version, he plays Jack Horner. Nice. And it's really funny. <laughs> he's fucking great as the colonel. That scene where he's... Through the window, but the phone's been cut off. I mean, that's yeah, fucking great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ooh, that, his, his timing is phenomenal. Uh, another thing that I really loved about this film is how long they would sit on on how long the shots would sit on somebody. And the colonel, when he first sees Dirk Diddler's John, <laughs> God, it's with, one of the best the way that he beats. looks down and then looks up, and they just sit there for a minute, hold on his <laughs> smile. The, the uh, other brilliant one smart. where they do that is when Jesse's girl is playing, 
Yes. And Dirk yep. Diggler zones the fuck out all messed up, hasn't slept in days, whatever firecrackers are popping, but he's not even jumping to him <laughs> That anymore. is mm-hmm. one of the zoned. most tense Jeez. scenes I've ever seen. It is so... The firecracker the, scene the, to me is my favorite scene in God, any movie of all pop. time. Yeah, it's... it's intri- And then the way the tape stops yes. mid-song, and it just sits there, and you hear the pops, and it changes the dynamic, right. and it doesn't relieve the tension. It doesn't amp it up either. It just changes. Yeah. It's so unsettling. And the performances, too. Alfred Molina <laughs> is off the chain. <laughs> amazing. And, but you rarely see him like that. This yep. lanky no. fucking you know, scarecrow <laughs> running around all hopped up. And then uh, Thomas Jane, amazing as Todd Parker. Which, if I, I told my brother, we've been, for years, we have this master file of like 130 fictional band names. I said, I think if I make a band ever, it's going to be Todd Parker's the band. <laughs> I just love this guy. <laughs> such a scumbag. Because you talk about deals with the devil. Todd Parker brought the house down. Yeah. Todd Parker's yeah. the guy who came around and he's the one giving Dirk the meth the time Dirk fucking went off and became an ego monster and got fired. Todd Parker's there in the beginning of that scene, you know? And yeah. you see that shift once Dirk goes down that road where he's not just this nice, kid, humble kid anymore. He becomes this ego monster, you know? Like, Dirk Diddler had the conflict and then that other character is what Light was like, Hey, why don't you walk through this door? Exactly. Hey, why don't you walk through this door? Hey, let's go. Let's go try and sell baking soda to a yeah. <laughs> but to well, a drug back to that thing real quick. One thing in that zone out. The fact when Je- Jesse's girl is the song that's playing, and watching it this time, I really keyed in. You could see the look, and Mark Wahlberg is fucking brilliant in this movie. It's still, it's his best performance ever. Yeah. I think you know, never he peaked I early. Agree. <laughs> um, but even the look then at his he kind of he kind of did the, he did the same movie again with Rockstar. Yeah, all right. Pfft, don't compare those, please. But uh, <laughs> you could see in his eyes it looked like he got that thousand yard stare, and he was remembering the life he had before it went to this shit. And that's why all of a sudden, even though two seconds ago he was in a hurry to get the fuck out of here, he became mesmerized by this song that's saying, "I wish I had Jesse's girl." And it's just very much about wanting this thing you can't have anymore. And it was that family because now he's fractured from the family and he's off rogue and shit's just getting worse and worse. So it ends up in that truck scene, you know? Oh, and that truck, what, what, what sent me over the top with that truck scene, what made it so good was, so thinking back to what he said to his mom during that, when, when he left home, which was another, like, incredibly acted scene Man. that gave me chills. And the way they cut to the dad in his room alone for a minute, just all so fucking brilliant. But God, the dad pisses me off. The I feel like it was a stepdad, too. That's what nope. I think was going on there. I think the dad okay. said it's not my place. It's her kid. Yeah. And just the way he set the plate down quietly <laughs> at breakfast because he's just walking on eggshells. But I think it was like a stepdad or so. That's the vibe I got. Uh, but knowing what is was underneath his drive to enter this industry and to become a star, and then when he's back in this truck after all that's behind him, and this guy wants him to jack off, and he's like, all right, do you have $20? Which we know is twice as much as he was charging when Burt Reynolds' character first met him in the beginning, and he goes, oh, no, all I have is $10. It's like, you only, like, you have literally gone nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after, what was the, I, I wrote a note circle. about it somewhere. It, it was, hell. oh, because the, uh, they took the, the $10 away from him after they kicked his ass. So 
he's not even in this place he was sure. before he entered this industry. He's he couldn't do any of it on his own, which is what made that that hug with Burt Reynolds. So like when he comes crawling back and he's so broken and he you can hear him talking to his father. Exactly. You know, you you can hear him saying, "Please daddy, forgive me, love me." And and he takes him in and he gives him that big hug and says it's all going to be okay and then that's what leads into that final sequence of like this weird little family just hanging out in the house with roller girls still there and all it it was so beautifully built. Dude, and William H. Macy's even there because he's one of yes, Janine's paintings. It's fucking brilliant to tie it all. It's so... It's like a Seinfeld or so Kermit Enthusiasm episode, just everything tying up perfectly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I could see some people maybe saying they didn't quite earn that happy ending, where the last time we saw Roller Girl, she's like curb stomping this dude with her fucking <laughs> roller skates. That dude, that dude deserved but, it, though. Yeah, oh, he totally deserved it. I'm just saying to jump from that to her getting her GED or whatever. I think that so, was the But the he planted weakest. the seed. He planted the seed yes. earlier. Yes. So he did all the work. He earned it. It's just you got to acknowledge it. And like, like you said, they planted the seeds. They had all these little, little details throughout the film, you know, like – that at first just seems like little character things that he he ties he ties in like right. uh, you know the fact that Roller Girl just fucking left school and just gone but, uh, and, or and the like, catalyst or, or, for it was somebody treating her like uh, for lack of a better word a slut you yeah. know the that slut shaming is what sent her out of high school right yeah. And I and I and I feel like it happening again is what motivated her to go back for it. But then, like, um, you know, um, John C. Riley and his fucking magic thing. Like he he was saying throughout the, throughout the film that it's like you know you, you can't fuck forever. You got to have a backup plan. His backup plan just happened to be magic. You know, like they all they all have their thing. Or the fact that you know, like bu- by the time that we meet Buck in this film, he's already one foot out of this yeah. world. I think it was you know, he wants a stereo shop. He's not very good at it. There's a great deleted scene. Where uh, Julianne Moore asks him, "What's wrong with the car stereo?" And he ha- and once he <laughs> has to actually talk about this shit, he's like, "He's like, oh, it's probably you know wattage. Yeah, it's probably not enough wattage." Yeah. Into that too, where he's like, yeah. he should say, take a few decibels off or something." He's like, uh, "Quads, <laughs> so, yeah. take four yep. quads down." <laughs> I thought it was really smart when they started kind of ramping up to the happy ending sequence that. Buck was kind of the kickoff to that because mm-hmm. of everyone, he was the one that deserved the happy ending the most. Totally. Like he was the one that from from the get go, he's like, "Yep, I'm an actor. I'm doing this, and I'm gonna like he's gonna open his his record." Him getting his... denied for the loan and him just, "I'm an actor." Yeah. Oh, just guts. That's me. what was beautiful too. Is the film was acknowledging that he would have to work outside of the system to achieve yep. his dream because the system's yep. built against him. And if you look at his name, it's Buck Swope, which is a nod to Putney Swope. Like Putney Swope. Which is directed yeah. by Robert Downey Sr., who plays in this film. the radio guy in this yep. movie. But he won't give them their fucking demo tape. <laughs> Another great scene. Mm-hmm. That's Robert Downey Jr. He's, he, directed Putney he's, Swope. He, he's... He's thanked in the credits as a prince, which is usually how he credited himself in his yeah. films. No, I, I, I reviewed Putney Swope on Putney this Swope's show. Putney Swope's dope, dude. Fucking, fucking love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's genius. Yeah, once I saw the last name, I was like, oh, shit, that's intentional. Yep, exactly. Buck Swope. 
So, I mean... I knew as soon as we saw Buck in that all-white suit and a white undershirt and a white tie blood. that something was about to get <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> you don't wear that much white for something no, not, to, no. not to happen. <laughs> that's like that's 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 building expectations. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to talk about, since we were, we were talking about some the, you know, the brilliant use of like this film's long long not only its long takes but then it's it's one shots but then like i also i think so much of why this film works i think is because the editing of dylan titchener who, who cut this film and he worked uh with altman he was an mm. apprentice he was like an assistant editor and his apprentice for on those films and that dude he he just finds this amazing pacing because like normally you have a film that will find it'll do one or the other it'll do a bunch of long takes or it'll do a bunch of quick cuts this film finds a way to do yeah, both it creates its own unique rhythm like i like that it only did this technique twice and it was when the first time we meet the colonel and like we got like three or four repeated shots of him getting out of the car and like it zooms in on him to show this guy's a big mm-hmm, fucking mm-hmm. deal the only other time it did that is when that when the video producer got out of his car to show big you shot, this dude is cut. a big fucking yeah. deal so the way that this film uses its rhythm and it has its own like fucking language to it yeah. and it knows when to have things be long and when for, for when things to be chaotic mm-hmm. well you can plan some of that on the set but you know some a lot, a lot of that's just found after the fact a lot of it but a lot of it too is you could just tell that's the language Paul Thomas Anderson speaks i mean his first movie mm-hmm. he didn't get his own final Heart cut eight. on it. Yeah, on Heart 8 or Sydney, I guess, was the original title. He didn't get his final cut on it, and it pissed him off. And that was, he said, basically his film school, and he knew the next thing he made, he was going to ensure he got, if not final cut, close to it, which he did have for this film. So I imagine he was there with him the whole time. But just the way those shots are constructed, they're so, I mean, if I were handed that as an editor, I'd be like, fuck, yes, this is some <laughs> great material to work with. You know right. what I mean? Because everything's like, I, so seamlessly either intentionally juxtaposed or just flows right into it. And again, it's without cutting that much. And that's what I think is lost. That is one of the drawbacks when we're talking this film versus digital thing. When you shoot on film, you better know what the fuck you want right. and get it and get it right. On digital, you can improvise. You can try all these different things because there's no cost. There's no Goldberg cans to schlep around and shit, you know? Um it's almost just you're playing with a house of money or something. So you end up, though, with less intention. Like, we talk about true filmmakers and visionaries. They have intention in every decision they make. He had made all the, a lot of those decisions before it went to the edit. And then I think the editor, though, perfectly brought it home, too. I don't know if it's that much of a different movie than PTA pictured in his mind in the beginning. You know what I mean? There's two scenes that I'd point to to illustrate that. One is when William H. Macy... Um, his wife is fucking with the crowd around him <laughs> and, and the director of photography is coming up and talking to him and the way that that's like a single shot framed beautifully with the two of them talking to each other mm-hmm. and all of that happening in the background, the, background. the whole time. <laughs> and it just sits there on that shot. So when William H. Macy is saying like, really, you're, you're really talking to me about this now when this is happening in the background, you're feeling it happening because it's not jumping to a medium shot back and forth between the two of them. You're also seeing it happen the yeah. entire time. Um, and then the other one that I'd point to is the diner sequence where they're telling Dirk like, yeah, you should really get into this industry. And the way that they pan off of whoever's talking 
to frame up Dirk and then um, Holly. Uh, was that her name? Um, Julianne Moore's character. Oh, Amber. Amber, thank yeah. you. Um, the way that they pan over, and so the conversation isn't being captured, but you're seeing those two connect. That right. While the acting was still good in there, it was the way that they panned off that told that story. You immediately knew that there was a connection there mm-hmm. from these two pans. Cutting's overrated, yeah. to be honest. I mean, I think modern movies are way too overcut, and it's that music video approach of just throwing all these images at you. And if you, I The agree, more you can put two awesome actors in a scene together and just let those motherfuckers go at it for ten yeah. straight minutes without cutting, the better, you know? I, 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 qu- I quote this interview all the time, but, like, there's a phenomenal interview, if anyone has the Criterion disc of Blowout, the Brian De Palma film, there's a like an hour and a half interview with Noah Baumbach nice. and Brian De Palma. Ooh. And they are, you know, there's a moment where like De Palma pretty much says, it's like, if you can't, if you can't tell, if you can't do your, your scene in your master shot, refigure out your fucking scene. Cause he said, you know, he figures out his master shot. He shoots the entire scene like that. And then he'll be like, okay. Oh, there was a good moment. She did her face here. Then we'll push in for a close up there. And he's he's like, I don't shoot coverage. I think it's mm-hmm. it's it's. And this film even has stuff to say too about intention. Mm-hmm. Like when they when they're shooting on film, you know, and they, they you know, there's so much intention behind what they're doing. And when they have to reload the camera and move the camera and all these other things, and even when they're editing uh, editing the films, they have a um, just this feeling of accomplishment but then when they switched the video at one point i think like the cinematographer says like oh we don't need to stop rolling it's video we can just shoot whatever and then like everything is i love what i love it when later on when like jack's like well how's it coming and he's like looking at his newspaper looks over like "Eh." like, you know he's not the same editor he was before you know like because you can just shoot anything and just and and find it but what i think this film does so wonderfully in its edit and in the way it's constructed is it knows when it needs to be chaotic when Mm -hmm. it needs to be fast-paced and because at the same time you know i don't you know i don't think there should ever be a situation where it's one or the other everything's a fucking tool you just need to know how to use it and i think um i I was saying this to you off mic a couple days ago jason like i just feel like there's a lot of filmmakers out there or a lot of people who work in the industry who don't watch movies, so they 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 know, but they they know they've worked on sets, they've worked on stuff, they know how to shoot things, they know how to do all this stuff, they know how to they they have these tools in their hands, they just haven't seen any masters use them very well, so they don't know how to use them themselves, you know, because if you you can you can know how to do all these things, but if you don't know the proper way to implement them, they're too, they're like misusing tools. Yeah, it's a like, lot of modern films are it, micromanaged too in the edits horrendously by these people who have no like marketing departments and shit, you know, right. mm-hmm. they have no business making any of these choices. And they, that's why they're actually cowards and they're scared of these long takes because that gives them less control. They can't say, pull this shot, pull that shot, put this in, whatever, and turn it into some Frankenstein's monster and shit, you know? So you don't see One, many filmmakers getting away with that stuff outside of the A24 crowd. Who A24 is like uh, Mike DeLuca, whoever it was that bet on Paul Thomas Anderson back in the day on making this film. Like, <laughs> oh, we can't run with the big studios and chase those top five directors. So we're going to find these up-and-coming auteurs and give them more creative control. That's what A24 has essentially done, too, you know? And it works. It's better shit. Yep. 
one of the th- the lines that I hear constantly in the like I'm I'm no longer moving in like indie film circles as much, but in just media development broadly is that like well people don't have long attention spans anymore. It's like bullshit. That's not true. Yeah, you did you that just, to them too. You you just need to like give them something to be interested in like if your content is crap then their attention span is short because they don't give a shit if it's if the shit is good good, it'll have my attention exactly people want to blame like kids these days when really you're telling a shitty story or telling a good story in a really shitty way people will say people will say all the time it's like oh movies nowadays suck it's like there's just fucking more of them, <laughs> so there's more of them that can. Yeah, suck. you just don't remember all the shitty ones that have fallen, th- sifted it, through the fingers of time or whatever. We're only left yes. with the classics and the hits. And, Absolutely, you know, there was a slew of shit out there, yeah, and not just the Ed yeah. Woods who became glorified years later for being shitty. You know, no, like there was, a, there's always been shitty movies. There always will be mm-hmm. shitty movies. This generation is not significantly worse than the other. There's just more shit out there, <laughs> and. You know, I think what people complain you know, about with some of that is just that the studios turn out such uninspired movies. Yes. Like, when yeah. you see the yeah, big <laughs> Fox and MGM or whatever that we grew up, like, yes. Like, I don't know about you guys. That was one of my favorite moments of a movie is just when the studio placard would come up. You're like, oh, shit, buckle up. Here we go. Whatever it's going to be, it's a movie. And I love movies. But it's just the same old shit over and over. When I grew up in the 80s, I mean, you were getting these little mid-range 15 to 30 million dollar thrillers all the time they were just really tightly well, written and shot and yeah act, well know. what i've also noticed too is anytime i've gone to see a movie that was something that's not you know avengers or what or whatnot not necessarily to pick on those movies but those that's what's dominating right. right now no one's fucking there so of course they don't take I mean, the chance money but that's like Spider-Man yes the <laughs> yes the studios are a huge element of it but i also like the audiences are a bit to blame too on the whole in that like if you only go see superhero movies then that's all they're going to put out part of it's the marketing like, issue though yeah, yes it costs a yeah. 100 million dollars to market a movie now that it's going to hit the Market's public consciousness right so i'm not going to make a 5 million dollar movie if i have to market it for 100 i'm going to make a 200 right. million dollar movie and market it for 100 yep. so i'm only spending 50% of what my budget is on marketing not 10 thousand percent you know it's it's funny because we earlier we were talking about the cost of filmmaking coming down and like this democratization where anybody can make it but the cost of marketing mm-hmm. it has gone up i think what so, we need to do is find <laughs> ways to pipeline things to people the more you can get people for instance to subscribe to an indie trailer yeah channel on youtube or something and then they're and, getting and access I've seen, to these things and i've seen plenty of the critical phrase would be half-assed attempts at like creating pipelines like that, mm-hmm. but none of them are ever successful. And I don't like, you know, so obviously much of the if I had the answer too, to that. That's the problem. Yeah. A lot yep. of cheap movies suck just as yep. much, if not worse than the studio shit, you know? Right. I, I think we're at a point now where we, there's so much stuff out there. I hate the term content. Yeah. That's the best way to say it. There's so much content out there. So many movies, so many TV shows. I think now more than ever, it's like imperative to have, to some extent, taste makers. Yeah, you got to curate know, it. Like, That's what I was about to say exactly. You'd have to have a curated Like, pipeline. you know, Nick, Nick, for example, you loved this movie after seeing it. Yes, you absolutely. wouldn't have. You know, you might have eventually seen it, but 
you were pushed into seeing it because of the, uh, because of this show. There was an outside it was curated to you. Yes. So I think I think that's that's important. Like um, you know, one of my favorite streaming services is Shutter, and while I don't necessarily love every movie they put out on there, I I feel like if they've acquired something and they're putting out as a Shutter original, it's like well, fuck, then this is something I should see because even if I don't like it, it's going to be interesting. And um, and but you need to have a track record for that, right. you know. When when people first started doing originals and shit, it was a little you know like oh I like who I'll check out the originals, but now they're all just trying to make their own shit so that way they don't have to acquire, you know, licensing fees. Like a Netflix original is no longer a, a mark a, a stamp of quality like it might have been at one point. Yeah, well, Netflix so is throwing so much money and making so much content. They're trying to overwhelm the fucking. Sense. So, so you have like, so it, much stuff coming at you. Why even look at Amazon? There's always something new yeah, here. You know? I, what I've always tried to do with this show is I'm, I'm always hoping that, you know, my hope is that people can listen to this show, even if they haven't seen what we're talking about, and leave it being like, well, fuck, now I've got to see that movie. Or if I, you know, can review something from Vinegar Syndrome and afterwards people are like, man, I need to see that fucking movie. Right. That's always my goal is if I could turn something, someone on to something cool. Because, like, when I was, back when I was in school, like, fuck, I, I almost kept, like, if I found cool stuff, I almost felt like I had to keep it to myself. I was like, I can't let other people see this cool thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the fuck I thought that. But now I'm like, I want people to see cool things because I want yeah. people to know this other shit. Out. So the problem is, too, though, how do you grow that audience to even do that? Right. I don't know how many subscribers you got. I mean, we hit a certain amount, and it's like they're also like-minded people, and you're preaching to the choir. It's yeah. like, how do I mm-hmm. cross that threshold where I'm That's turning the hard part, people yeah. who don't know what the shit is onto it? You know, like uh, my wife works in the inner city as a teacher. And a lot of times we end up getting close with students of hers because their family lives are so fucked up. So we help them out with stuff or won't even live with us for like 10 months to finish high school. But we had this kid and I would take him to the movie sometime, but I would take him to, oh shit, Untouchables is playing. Or Scarface <laughs> is playing. You yeah. know, like I'd go to the revival night movies and shit, you know? And yeah. Well, what's weird, like, a bit. And it blew you know, you're saying like, like, damn, you think about, you talk about movies with long shots in them and just made in that classical style that you don't see much yeah. anymore. Like I talk about this film all the time and in interviews I've done and articles I've written and shit. I tend to mention it a lot. Lars von Trier's The Five Obstructions. Have you, either of you seen this? I have not seen that. I've heard of it. It's basically he took this seminal Danish filmmaker that he was mentored by who made this amazing film. I think it's called The Perfect Human or something in like the 60s. And Lars von Trier's like, I'm going to challenge you to remake your movie five ways and obstruction. The term obstruction being, I'm going to give you this limitation or this rule that guides how you do it. So for example, one of the times you remake your film, I want you to do it animated. Now I want you to remake it where no cut can be longer than 12 frames. Like you fuck something like that. Think about that. Oh wow. 24 frames per second. No cut. It's trippy though. It's very interesting to watch it, you know? So anyway, the point being, though, that you could take this one film and interpret it and reconstruct it and show it in all these ways. But also it harkens to Orson Welles famously said to Peter Jaglum in these conversations they were having that the enemy of art is the absence of limitation. Right. So the idea we were having this conversation on one of our episodes, like where the where the restrictions hone the, the product. Exactly. And it makes it this, you made these creative decisions within the confines of this gamified kind of thing that you're doing, you know what I mean? Which 
that's kind of appealing to have to use TikTok itself and its editing apparatus yeah. to make films, you know? Yeah. Something we should talk about. It's interesting, at least. Yeah, and I almost would have liked, like, honestly, I could have kept watching Boogie Nights if the, the movie would have just kept going. And, like, I, I honestly believe my heart of hearts, you know, like, the, when the video producer came in, Jack uh, um, Jack was viewing this as, like, the end of his career or whatever. I honestly think he would have, like, he would have found a way to make it work. And his fucking mo- he would have recru- recruited some new people. And I think he would have just still been making stuff. Hell, look, he he was trying to do bang bus before bang bus. <laughs> there was there was a really Truth. beautiful that's moment. That's reality TV shit. Too. Sorry to interrupt. Oh no, um, there was this really beautiful moment in that scene where it was really like narratively about Roller Girl and and her encountering this other guy. But he kept saying, "We're you know we're making film history." Well, the, you know, video history. And there was there was this moment where like this sadness came over him of what have i become and it's just a look he gives yeah and maybe a stumbled line an intentionally stumbled line um that just hit me like a ton of bricks of of that like where he gave up his mm-hmm. his art and and this place that he found himself at and reflecting on i think he, he knew too become. the money was never going to be the same like, they oh. rode that high, and he was like, the money you can make is infinite. That ain't true on digital. The more you democratize it, especially once you democratize distribution with something like the internet, and now, yep. who pays for porn? Like, come on. Um, <laughs> it's amazing anyone still makes it to make money. I mean, right. you're pretty much, pretty sure the girls are doing it for drugs, the dudes are doing it for the girls. <laughs> That's, I think, the equation. Because no one's paying for it, are they? Um Someone yeah, must someone be. Must be. Know, like, I don't know what the racket only, is. Like, but look at the people on OnlyFans. They're making money. money. I think, it, I think it. it comes down to, I don't know who's paying for, like, you know, you know, like the highly produced point. I'm sure someone is because it's still being made, but you got people, like, uh, on OnlyFans making content specifically for people. Yeah. I think people want, want you and know. in a safe environment. Want, want to be catered to. Well, the more niche things go, which does happen, I think, too, is it democratizes like that. People will pay for niche shit. They can't get elsewhere. You know right. what I mean? But just generic, whatever. Like Bang Bus, they got a hook. And you build a right. brand, and maybe people will pay for that or something. I, but I think with like the OnlyFans formats, mm-hmm. there is a certain... And, and don't over put, put too much on this wording, but there's an intimacy to it that you don't get from like generic porn surfing because you're going there to visit one person. It's like that dude and, who falls in love with the stripper. Yes, and thinks yeah, she loves him. Totally. <laughs> there's the chat. You can chat. You can talk directly to yeah. them, and they might even talk to you. It feels back less cheap because it's kind of personal. Yeah. Weird. There's there's the niche <laughs> for that. <laughs> hey, to each his own, and you know. <laughs> well, as transactional one, as you want to make it, I'm cool with it. I don't care. Right. But. What one of the things that I really liked about the film is how how modern it felt their treatment of the sex industry how how modern it felt like there that there wasn't that level of judgment on it it was uh in a way that i'm seeing the last few years yeah it's interesting because i think pre-aids there was a period in the 70s where it was like yeah wheeling and shit yep Again, porn movies were playing in art house theaters and shit. It's right. like we hit the 80s and Reaganism and all this shit, Puritan. And even, I'm not just blaming conservatives because Tipper Gore was a fucking Democrat. Yeah. So yep. it's just, 
squares and prudes run shit usually you know what i mean <laughs> like they're the ones that while we're busy doing this stuff and having fun they're like aspiring to positions of power etc then you get the christian coalition calling in on howard stern every day to the fcc uh-huh. and shit so i mean it's like we captain we kind of came out of it. Up and- <laughs> <laughs> we kind of came out of the other side of it how you say modern kinda- sensibilities are a little more laissez-faire about all that shit which is cool yeah. But it's all sick. It's, it's it yes, still yeah. blows my mind that like porn used to be theatrical. Like there's still a drive. I looked it up one time. There's still a drive in somewhere in Texas that, do, that does triple X movies. That's awesome. And like I'm just glad that, that yeah. exists. <laughs> like I was telling I was telling my wife Amanda about that. that you know, I don't think that, I'd like, go, but I'm hell yeah, I'm but, glad but, it exists. But, but, but like, when, I, when I first started, when I first started getting like these review Some copies in of. of <laughs> of like vintage porn from from vinegar syndrome you know i kind of became like uh invested in the history of it and just trying to learn more about it because you know you can't talk about the history of film without there also being the history of porn yeah. pretty much pretty much the second I, I always joke that as soon as the lumiere brothers you know shot that train leaving this train station they're like okay how can we do this for sex oh yeah <laughs> like they were pretty much like whenever they might have done whenever sex things first, we just didn't see it. <laughs> whenever exactly. anything is invented, it's used for sex first. How can we Look fuck at the it? internet? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but like I was telling Lumiere my wife about shot this, cats in stag films. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was telling my wife just about like the history of it and like the stuff you used to play theatrical, and it blew her mind because you know, like I can't speak for anyone else, but like myself growing up, like it's always about, kind of been taboo. But to think that it was like an open thing like that for the longest time, like the I, I remember just thinking it was crazy as a kid. There was a Playboy channel. Yeah. <laughs> the time I stumbled upon that, like what? I mean, it was this cable. could be on TV. Yeah, it was like a extra pay for it kind of channel. But yeah. Here's the question, though. Here's the thing. You talk about Jack Horner, like when video came, and that's a great narrative thing for us to say that video killed the film star. Or, you know, <laughs> but. Didn't have to be that way. No, you can still no. try and be as artful as hell with digital, yeah. the medium. The thing is to treat it. It's like you need discipline. Shoot it as if it's film. Now, I had a lot of experimental shit I did in Cactus Jack, but I kind of did a Dogman '95 thing, and I gave myself rules like no more than three takes. I have ten minutes to light. I was giving myself obstructions essentially. Once in order, yep. Once I decided to make it a found footage movie, and I was going to shoot it myself and do everything myself. I was like, I got 10 minutes to light it. We'll do three takes, Eastwood style, get the shit kit out. Well, that's, I, I think that it wasn't, because of the timing of it and the way that it was laid out, I think that it isn't exclusively that he went to video. Yes, he was against video from the get-go, but I think it was the, the timing of the reveal with the colonel right. that really killed yeah, the artist in him. That's true, for sure. Um, I had it not been for that, I bet he would have went, this sucks, this is stupid, why are we doing this? And then he would have gotten the cameras, he would have gotten the tapes, he would have shot one, and he went, okay, I can work yeah, with Yeah, as this. a character, that part of him had died. Yes. You know, but. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like, uh, like I said, if we were to get like a, you know, 40 years later type thing, if Jack Horner was still alive, they'd be like giving him a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Woody. Yes, right yes, I like that. I like He's that a pioneer. <laughs> He's a pioneer. Totally. Boogie Nights rules. I'm glad you like it. Yes. It makes um, me happy. 
one more thing that I'd, it, I'm going to go off on a tangent here a bit. I probably won't Fuck go yeah. anywhere. But um, I'm drinking whiskey, man. I'll go as long as you tangent. <laughs> Why did I think that John C. Riley wouldn't be playing the same John C. Riley character? Like, I thought... That because I was expecting this the is dark the prototype drama. for Step Brothers here. His role it, it is the same role in Step Brothers. Yeah, I said that, that while I was watching. This it. was the shit that branded like, him as such. You know, I was expecting this really dark film. I, I was just expecting him to be playing a much different role, and it was kind of um, comforting to see that it was still the same John C. Riley that I know and love. Him reading his poetry from the oh yeah from the hot tub oh dude well, I also I don't think they said it specifically but I'd like to think that the songs that they were recording for Dirt Diggler's album were all written by John C Riley's character amazing <laughs> you got the touch <laughs> you got the power and feel 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 my heat. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good, dude. Mm-hmm. Well, part of the beauty of this movie, the true joy of it is, I don't want to talk down to these characters because they're all just humans, and that's what it really intends to say, but they're not rocket scientists. No, It's not no, the most they're... sophisticated people. It's, uh, and I love watching dummies do dumb shit <laughs> in movies, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost a subgenre of just dumb fuck up movies. Yeah. Well, the, the Coen brothers kind of exactly. mastered that yeah. genre. Exactly. Well, and they're they're dumb without being like, parodies of dumbness exactly which is not... usually what you get yeah right. usually when there's dumb characters they're off the rails stupid like they're just people even the coen brothers edge into parody and welcome to collinwood movies like that palookaville that you see about dummies <laughs> i love these little movies but they kind of parody it and you're right this shit is huge just authentic i really want to talk about philip seymour hoffman's oh. character oh yes. my Jay. god there's no way i'm leaving before we talk about scott and jay <laughs> Scotty J is just so fucking genuine, and like this was my first uh, as a, like when I was younger, this was my first introduction to Philip Seymour Hoffman, and just everything that he's doing in this film is just so interesting. Like he without without trying is stealing every scene. And he's he's in he's in a movie with a bunch of fucking scene stealers, and he right. still yep. manages to steal he's every scene. Dope. I don't think he's even trying with, to. Without saying a word, just holding a boom mic as the camera pushes in on him a little Ooh, bit. His face <laughs> transfixed. So good. And it's loaded up, too, now, because, you yeah. know, you can tell he's in. Even when it first sees him, it goes into that... <laughs> telescopic. Oh, yeah. that I, that iris, yeah. yeah, iris in on him, and it's just like ah. it was a you know falling in love, love at first sight scene, essentially. Yeah, know? which yep. pays off then with that amazing drunken kiss. Oh, wanted, if you didn't like the car, I was going to return it and shit. Like he's so <laughs> what, I, what, what? Everything he does. Would Dirk do this? Should I get a milkshake? I don't know. Dirk might think it's sad. <laughs> Dirk taught me a couple moves. Yeah. <laughs> what I love about what I love about that kiss scene too is like there's. There, there's so a, a buddy of mine. His name is Brian Hollandyke. He, he one time told him. me that he was listening. He was he was listening to like a commentary for um, uh, Breaking Bad, and he said when you know the, the Vince Gill Vin, Vince Gilligan is that his name Gilligan whatever the creator yeah. of Breaking Bad. He was like you know his his whole mantra for that making that show is you know whenever you 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 sit down to write a scene you think about how would this scene play out in any other movie and then do something different and the way that Dirk handles that scene is different because any other movie he would have been like, "What the fuck, Scott?" It was a little bit of that, but he like he probably would have beat the shit out of Scotty or been really weird a about it. Or movie like, would have 
taking that moment to yeah. make its message. Well, but like, him, yeah. you know. and like Dirk was like, it was very much like, what the fuck, Scotty? But it's not like, but it was fine. I'm mad at you for he it. He wanted like, to be on the other side yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, because he was still like nice to him in that scene. Totally. Yeah. And, and it didn't seem to it's impact family. their relationship <laughs> yeah. after at any point after that scene. They well, this still is a, this is a group of people who are all fucking friends. each other. It right. wouldn't. Uh, that was nice that there wasn't this like fallout from that moment That's the that any too. other movie would have. Yeah, the only time he's ever mean to Scotty J is when he's fucked up on drugs. Right, <laughs> and then he's mean to everyone. Roller Girl comes in, what's yeah. up guys, whatever, you know. <laughs> but like, just like, just, he, Scotty J just, just you know, I don't even think of it as Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's just Scotty J just does so yeah. many interesting little things throughout this movie this is- and it just really feels like he just built I think my, bro- my brother and I, you know, we were like fucking partners of crime, obviously watching every film and shit together growing up, except the times we were geographically separated. But uh, I'm pretty sure we had seen him in Patch Adams yep. and something else prior to this. Pa- Patch Adams Maybe and Twister the Big Lebowski. Were my first two. I don't have to see what... I'm looking it up. I'm looking up his, his But I know we'd seen him play just squares, like in Patch Adams, the uppity yeah. guy or whatever. And then mm-hmm. seeing him in this, like, dude, <laughs> it's that fucking big-headed weird dude from Patch Adams. <laughs> I, but he fucking I, crushed it. And then, of course, from there, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman's a goat. His death is, uh, uh. His son, dude, the fact that Paul Thomas Anderson just made a film with his son in it, and his son crushed it, I thought. I don't know if you saw Licorice Pizza. I did, and funny enough, when we, oh, I, no, I didn't yeah. know that was his son when I first saw that movie, and I w- I remember like turning to my wife and being like, "This dude reminds me of Philip Seymour Hoffman." <laughs> I didn't know. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking up his career. Like, pizza, by the way, I don't know if you cross pollinate your reviews. I loved it. Oh yeah, well, it's throw a, anything It felt here. like lesser Paul Thomas Anderson to me because it didn't have any of those real tense scenes like the firecracker scene or <laughs> you know Phantom Thread had some great shit. All of them do. They have that hint of danger, you know. Um, I lo- I loved it too. My my biggest complaint was like I would have I, I feel like the the ending completely undoes the entire movie, but that's just me. Yeah, we'll wait until he's seen it. I don't yeah, want I don't want to get too spoiler because the movie's still pretty right. new. <laughs> but suffice to say though, as each day went by after I watched it, I found myself just smiling, thinking about it and shit. So it's it's great. Same. Man. It's another hangout. It it's is masterful coming of age slice of that time period. You know. Yeah. The Heim girl, the girl from the band is amazing. All the Heim girls are good in it. Do you see he's directed like some music videos of theirs? So I guess yeah, they're buddies. Dude. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson just seems like he's always fucking working, yet he doesn't have a huge filmography, which I respect. Right. I mean, he takes his time writing, et cetera. Yeah. I love, too, that he's not like, I'm making 10 movies like Tarantino and shit. Like, what's that all <laughs> about? It's like you're overthinking it, yeah. dude. <laughs> Why box yourself in and make proclamations? If you want to make one, make one. If you don't, don't. Yeah, like you know, I don't know. Like especially because Tarantino's whole thing is like, yeah, I don't want to be one of those filmmakers that um, gets old and stops making good movies. Fucking hasn't stopped Scorsese, right? And he's throwing shade. Uh, you too know, when he says that at the Sydney. Love Lumets him or hate him, whoever you know. Yeah, and love him or hate him, but you know, I, Spielberg has had far more successes than he's had. Bombs. Mm-hmm. Even Spielberg's bad movies have something interesting oh, yeah. in them. Spielberg, you can't shit on Spielberg. <laughs> Except Hook. Fuck so, Hook. You like Hook, don't you? Oh, I like. I do. Hook. I, I love Hook. Hook. <laughs> I hated Hook when I was. I'm older than you guys too. I, 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 I hated Hook. Started. I did not like Hook the first couple times I saw it. 
but I have both come around fucked, to love fucking it. Wrong. It's just the kids. The treatment of the kids. As a kid, here's what was great about Spielberg movies. They didn't pander to the kids and treat the kids like dumbass little kids. If you think about even the shit he produced, the Goonies, E.T., e. yep. these movies uh, have dick Mark jokes agrees with you. Them, right? Mark agrees. But the kids in those movies were like grown-ups in waiting and shit. You know, they were on that cusp. And then Hook comes along and it just, the, the Neverland kids I just felt like, daddy. yeah, it just, it felt like a cartoon. Like, it didn't feel like Spielberg did those kids. That's, that's it's the Lost bad. Boys. It should be like some outsider shit going on. <laughs> <laughs> Rufio stand and fucking by. food I, fights and I, shit. I, Come on, man. <laughs> that was Spielberg making a oh. movie. I want to know how old his kids were when he made Hook. That felt like that Ooh. one where he's like, I'm making a movie for my kids. Like when Stephen King wrote Eyes of the Dragon or something, it's kind of a departure from what yeah. you normally do. You know what I'm saying? I want to know. I, I, I've often joked about this. I want to know who the fuck was on set with Spielberg on Ready Player One feeding him who, what these references like, <laughs> Does Spielberg know what a Gundam is? <laughs> I don't. I haven't seen Ready Player One yet either. What is a Gundam? Uh. Is that some... It, it's it's like some from from Jap- Japanese yeah, anime, anime but it, it's like in the movie, suit, and I was right. like, does Spielberg know what this is, or were people just like feeding him ideas? <laughs> I don't know. I want to know. Um, <laughs> but was there anything else you guys wanted to talk about with Boogie Nights? Uh, the one thing that I would like to uh, talk about briefly is just the ending of the film with how much they they built up. Dirt Diggler's dick, and every time, <laughs> hey, every time, there's <laughs> so you. many like slow unzips and and cut away to reaction shots or the film running through the camera, and it happens so much, and the payoff is so great at the end where the last thing we see is his dick just hanging there. I was so happy that that's how this film ended. <laughs> it's great. I'm surprised. My got first an thought, R. though, right. <laughs> My first thought was like, man, that seems like it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> Just, it is. Trust me. <laughs> I was gonna say, my other one was like, that is it, right? <laughs> I guess I'm that's a realist. A I guess that's decent. It's kind of long. It's kind of skinny though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad they did it that way too. It's just like you know, it's it, that was the payoff. Yeah. You know, because they're they're talking about this this monumental hog that he has to show it is so. Eventually, they had to show it. Yeah, what percentage of filmmakers? It it was more penisy than ballsy. I didn't see much more shafty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially because like with American with American cinema, they're just like yeah, prudes, dude. They're yeah. prudes. Like I, I, me and Nick reviewed this uh, uh, movie last season called Betty, Betty Blue. Blue yep. And half of the movie, the weed character's just walking around naked, and his penis is just flopping in the wind. I was about to start and writing. It's not a big deal. And he said, "Penis." Like, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, there's so many movies. With I mean, what's that movie that Michael Winterbottom dude made? Nine songs that has like actual penetrative sex in it. I mean, Europeans I don't, know, don't give a that. shit, dude. Right. Right. Well, I remember at the Twisted Dreams Film Festival, I showed the film um, uh, The Slashening made by uh, Brandon Bassam. He's, he's involved with the trauma guys. And I remember because I was given the opportunity to watch all the trauma screeners. And uh, Chris and Steve were like, well, pick one that you like and show it. And I was like, fuck yeah. And, you know, I had like 12, film, 12 feature-length films to watch. These were like, all trauma films? Like, 
Yeah, and it's like, you know, I love trauma films, but sometimes the trauma acquisitions can be a little grating. So I would go to Letterboxd and just kind of get a rough idea of what people were saying about a movie first. And the thing that sold me on the slashing was one review was this guy gave it a half star review, and his review was this movie has more dicks than a gay porn. I'm like, well, if I can show that to an audience. You know, my brother and I actually have this thing. It's like an inside joke where. He thinks I have this thing where I try and show him movies with dicks in them, <laughs> but it's just like I love so many European movies, movies and dicks. Diverse, you know. Yeah, or, uh, I think we can all agree Santa with muscles would have been better <laughs> with a dick. <laughs> My brother loves sponges. Ex-wife disagrees or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I appreciate uh, the that European European sensibility because when we grew up any nudity in film was very both very overtly sexualized but then also clearly like sales driven yeah objectifying it's like, mm-hmm. c- come look at this movie because it has boobs in it well there's that where, great bit in ed wood where he's like what's the one thing you put in a movie and everyone to come see it tits <laughs> tits no, a star <laughs> it's like, no the guy was right Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was the shit. All right. Was there was there any, was there any final thoughts? If not, I do have a you know to make our sponsors happy. I do have a quick little physical media review. Okay. If, no, if we're done with booking. Just want want to wrap it up. Capstoning that uh, I I did really love this more than I thought I would. Um, Fuck yeah. So, are there any other Paul Thomas Anderson movies you've missed other than? I've probably missed a lot of them. Dude, check them out. Ooh, Magnolia. So I, mean, I, I did. See I, Magnolia. I've actually seen very few of his films. I'll actually tell you which ones I've seen. I I liked oh, by- this more than um, more than Magnolia. I, I liked Punch Drunk Love, but not as much as Booty Nights. There will be blood. I saw that was pretty good, but no. But so far of the ones I've seen, uh, Booty Nights is the top. Boogie Nights is great. It's hard to so talk, man. I've seen the Dirk Diggler story because I watched it for this. <laughs> uh, Boogie Nights. Uh, I've not seen Magnolia. I have not seen Punch Drunk Love. Ooh, I've... Funny enough, I've seen, I saw his short film Couch that he made with Adam Sandler <laughs> around the same nice. time he did Punch, Punch Drunk, Drunk Love, which is funny great. to me. Phil Seymour Hoffman crushes in that, too. I have not seen There Will Be Blood, and the only reason being is like when that movie came out, it was going head to head with there uh, no with country. No Country for Old Men, yeah. and I like just swore my allegiance to No Country at that Dude, time. No Country is great. Still, there Will Be Blood's better. That's what I've been told, and that's part of the reason I'm a little it scared to go to. Might be the greatest it. film ever made. Just Daniel Day Lewis's performance is fucking insane. I've not seen The Master, but I have seen Inherent Vice. What do you think of Inherent which, Vice? That is. I think I enjoyed it more than anyone else did that year. I love, I love it, man. I think it's entertaining as I hell. did, too. <laughs> I, I, I quote uh, Josh Brolin ordering pancakes all the time, like, Moto Pancake-o! Love it. And it's kind of, it's a little insensitive, so I don't say it very loud, but I just, anytime I, I'm eating pancakes, I think of that line. <laughs> Quickly, let me make one more confession as it regards this movie. So, Please. I'm one of those guys, throughout the years, you know, feast or famine, filmmaking, screenwriting, etc., boom or bust a lot of times. Yep. I've amassed like a thousand plus physical media collection like three times. And I had to <laughs> sell them off heartbreakingly and shit when I'm broke. Oh, and no. then like, I'm getting them back. And start buying them again. Now it's mostly used DVDs off eBay and shit. But uh, I didn't have Boogie Nights. I knew I had Boogie Nights. I was positive I had Boogie Nights. 
And I was looking through all my shit. I was like, let me look at my spreadsheet. I don't fucking have Boogie Nights. I had to watch it on Tubi with commercials in it. That's which, what I watched is it. Is that on. what you did? Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I have that, that that DVD copy that had like the fold yeah, so out with like, with like, like the yellow gold. His like essay written yeah. on it. Yep. Surprisingly killer audio because mm-hmm. like people always make fun. Like, I, I'm a I'm a home theater junkie. Like it's it's been pretty well established on the <laughs> yes. show. I've got t- speakers almost as tall as I am. Um, you know, I follow a lot of home theater pages. People shit all over DVDs because of poor quality and, yeah, fuck. and 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 picture quality. Yeah, they're not as good as they could be. Audio quality on those DVDs still fucking. And the bonus features and everything, you can't beat it. To me, yeah. Are you really that much of a technical snob that you can't watch it in DVD format? Like it's not high def enough for that's weird to me. Right? Like I watch some Dude, grainy, I still, shitty. I, I, I can still talk have about Todd Haynes film. I still have yeah. VHS. Yeah, I still have VHS. I have a VCR. Hooked Sometimes up to it's my better. Fucking, Expensive ass Some movies don't look right remastered, you know? Uh, I got the... My brother got me that sick-ass Friday the 13th collection with all the movies in it. What is it? Not a... I don't think it's Vinegar Syndrome. Who was it? Shout or whatever put out that mm-hmm. Friday the 13th. And I'm watching it, and they're all remastered. I'm like, I don't know. It's kind of too clean. Give me that grit and that <laughs> right? grime back on my Friday the 13th, you know? It's, I don't mind DVDs at all. 20 years from now, people will be collecting DVDs the way that, like, like kids are collecting cassette tapes nowadays. Yep. Like, I was a vinyl head, but now kids want cassette tapes, because that's what they grew, what they grew up on, what they, like, or what their parents oh grew God. up I, on, or, you know. I'm, a friend of mine just got me as a gift. He got me, so... John Carpenter's soundtrack to that new Halloween movie, Halloween Kills, he got it for me on cassette. Yeah, right? <laughs> It's awesome. and they're putting it. them out yeah sponsors alright so, you guys want to listen to me talk about a movie you probably haven't sure, seen I would love for to. a couple minutes and then we can wrap up so so I, I do reviews for Vinegar Syndrome Nick you've heard me talk about a lot of their stuff I don't think I've actually convinced you to buy any yet uh, it's it's always yeah. been a good feeling of mine I, I had my friend uh, uh, Nick Aldrich on this show one time and as I'm talking to him about a disc he's on fucking Amazon buying <laughs> I love that feeling I love that power um, so they sent me something very recently it's a movie called Shallow Grave Ooh. it is not the um, uh, there's another more famous Danny film Boyle. with the title Shallow Grave. Yeah, it is not Danny Boyle's film. Which is so this a is from 1980. Yeah, this, I've not seen that one yet, but this one is from 1984. So I'm going to read the description to you guys because it is it's pretty fucking bonkers. <laughs> so Shallow Grave. Four college co-eds are on their way to Florida for spring break. While passing through it. a small Georgia <laughs> town, they unwittingly, unwittingly witness the murder of a woman. But when they discover that the assailant is the local sheriff, they're forced on the run from a cunning and deranged sociopath who will stop at nothing to cover up his crime. After trapping the girls in town overnight, he devises a plan to permanently eliminate any potential witnesses and begins to terrorize and murder the girls one by one. Packed with nail-biting suspense from beginning to end, Richard Stiles' Shallow Grave is an edge-of-your-seat, twist-filled Hitchcockian thriller (laughs) with very strong slasher tendencies, never released legally on Mm. disc anywhere in the world. Vinegar Syndrome is proud to bring the criminally underseen Shallow Grave to Blu-ray, freshly restored from long-believed lost 35mm elements alongside newly shot and illuminated interviews. So this movie... Yeah, you're putting Nick to sleep. I don't think he's going to be buying. <laughs> it's past my bedtime. No slashers. <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> the, 
this movie, it's like you know at the beginning of it, it's like a a a, a college dorm movie, and you know these girls are playing pranks on on one another, and you feel it's going to be a slasher film because like there's like this you know the 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 killer POV type look, and they're going around with a knife and shit, and it just turns out to be a whole big prank, and then it, it becomes like a road trip movie of them like going to spring break, and there's really like, cheesy eighties music and a bunch of you know dumb porkies like antics and you're like you get an idea of what this film's gonna be and i saw a review on letterbox that pretty much sums this up where they said this movie is this movie is jaunty and a lot of fun until it's not <laughs> uh pretty much like they 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 their car breaks down so what's your favorite part the, though the, the fun part or the not part i don't know if i had so a favorite good, part yeah, yeah. If the not is in the running for being your favorite part that's good yeah, I don't know if I had a favorite part because like this movie had such a crazy tonal shift from like nice. the moment that they discovered that this ca- this this sheriff murders this woman and he's quickly trying to like bury her body when these like characters walk up and be like, "Hey, our car is broke down. Can you help us out or whatever?" And he's like just staring fucking daggers through them. And these girls are talking to this woman who's the woman he just killed who he has propped up in the front <laughs> seat, like asking her for a cigarette. And they're like, why is this bitch ignoring me? And he just quickly, very quietly grabs this revolver from the holster, just blasts one of the girls in the <laughs> oh, head, has yes. the craziest low budget, like Love headshot it. that I've seen in a I'm movie there. in a long time. And then it becomes like this almost like Macon County line, like cat and mouse movie that, uh, it just make it doesn't it makes you feel very unsettled and almost like you need a shower in the end because like the movie has no fucking happy ending. And while exploitations usually don't, there's usually some fun mm. exploitation films or if there's dark. women being terrorized, they'll get like some revenge or whatever. Every you know, spoiler, everyone fucking dies in this movie. The movie ends with like the sh- the sheriff in the because uh, no one's caught him yet. And there's this last girl who's being wheeled out on a stretcher, and she's going to be taken to the hospital. And the sheriff gets into the the ambulance with her, and right when the ambulance door closes, his deputy realizes he's the sheriff's actually be the one killing all these people. And that's where the fucking movie ends. Just like m- makes you just feel like it's awesome, kind of like sour, yeah, and like fuck. And it's like so the. And it had these like crazy tonal shifts, and like this movie made for like fifty bucks in a Slim Jim, but it was it was it was super well done. Like it's it's one of those things like you know they didn't have a lot of money, but they knew how to put a movie together. Yeah, and yeah, nice. Got some cat action. Yeah. Hey, vinegar syndrome. Send me some fucking movies, and I'll start my podcast back up. <laughs> Speaking of which, Nick, um, what was your movie you wanted to talk about? Uh, did I want to talk about? Well, our whole thing was like your favorite movie, like Michael. Oh yeah, uh, the Prestige. Oh yeah, yeah. Shit, if you ever want to do it, I'll do it. Fuck it. My brother might not be there. Maybe I'll fire it back up. It is fun bullshit like this. Absolutely. We could just do another episode and just break our own rules and just talk about the fucking Prestige. (laughs) It's our podcast. We do do whatever the fuck. Do you guys not have returning guests and stuff or what? Not really. It's usually just me and Nick, and then we just invite people on when we feel yeah, like it. Man, I got a bunch but, of movies I could probably throw at you guys too that you might not have seen. It'd be interesting. Like we, we, I still want to do a Peter Bogdanovich yeah. episode because I've actually seen very few oh, of dude. his movies, and with him just passing, some of them are so different. Like just, Noises Off is one of the funniest fucking movies of all time. <laughs> you would not think it was a Bogdanovich movie. He's made some good but, ones. Return guests are always welcome. It's right. just that yeah, we yeah. we have very little follow through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 
But no, like I, I, you know, I'd love to have you on again. Oh yeah, anytime. Believe it or not, I do recommend people check out Shallow Grave. It'll make you feel like uncomfortable afterwards, (laughs) but in like, but in a bad way. (laughs) No, in a in a good way. Where like when you leave a movie and you don't know how to feel about it. I love it. You you know you didn't. You know you didn't hate it. Yeah. Yeah. And like honestly, it looks great too. Like uh, one thing I love that Vinegar Syndrome does is they they always do like I almost. You know, they don't try to overly clean up shit. They try to keep it fe- keep it feel like it was playing That's at the Grindhouse Theaters in, in New York. Vinegar Syndrome, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I guess uh, uh, thanks Cheers. for joining us, Nick. Yeah. If you're not down with Boogie Nights, I've got two words for you. Watch, Watch movies. <laughs> the Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.